This is the Right Now Podcast with Sarah Werner. Episode 123, Starting Ugly with David Dushaman. Welcome back again this week, friends. I am so excited to be speaking with you as always, and I am extra super special, super special excited. I don't even think that's a thing, but I'm extra excited to talk today to David Dushman, who is a best-selling author, photographer, and a bit of a firebrand, per his words, where the creative life is concerned, and I completely agree. His podcast, A Beautiful Anarchy, was my introduction to David, and it is all about the joys and challenges of the creative life and a reminder that you're not alone, especially if that creative battle feels like it's something you have to face every day. There is just so much of a crossover between the subjects that we talk about, and I'm so excited to bring David to you today. Just a few more things. David did spend the last 15 years traveling the world as a humanitarian photographer and leading creativity workshops in all seven continents, so kind of a big deal. His adventures have taken him through winters in Russia and Mongolia and a summer on the Amazon, as well as months among nomads in the Indian Himalayan and remote northern Kenya. David has a 12-year past history in comedy that I think is also, it applies to the present as well, and brings a dynamic and engaging presence as a presenter in workshops, on camera, or on stages for corporations like Apple and Amazon. Again, kind of a big deal. His books, you need to check out his books. Uh, Within the Frame, The Soul of the Camera, speak to his current life in photography, but we're also going to talk about a few of David's books that apply to the writing practice. Uh, One of which you may have caught my previous right now and dear creators newsletters talking about what I've discovered from the incredible insights of his book, Start Ugly. So David, hi, hello, and welcome to the show. Hi, Sarah. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. I feel, I, listening to that, I'm excited about this show. <laughs> well, I'm excited to say? talk to you. Well, hey, who knows? <laughs> yeah, so so hi. And now I'm just, after reading this beautiful novel about you, I'm so excited to dive into absolutely everything. I'm also excited. I have my cat Midori, who I'm gently going to place on the floor. <laughs> oh, I know. I love you. Okay, angry cat noise is over, hopefully. David, welcome to the show. I would love for you to begin just telling us not a little bit about yourself, but I want to hear a little bit about what it means for you to live a creative life. Gosh, what a way to start easy, hey? Just, <laughs> just I like to no jump kidding, in. pull the pin on the grenade and lob it over the fence. I um, I'm all about making. I want, hmm, I, I, you know, I love making things like the tangible stuff, the photographs, the books, and, and that sort of thing. But for me, it's as much as I love the, the thing that you know, the the product that results at the end. You get the you get the book in, in your hands, and you 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 publish the podcast or whatever it is. It is for me it, the real joy and challenge is in. The actual process of making, I, I really believe that art making, and I, I, I don't capitalize the word art. I think, you know, art is, uh, art belongs to everyone. Creativity belongs to everyone. For me, the great joy and challenge of it is the, 
is the doing, is mm. the things, it's about transformation for me. I, I believe that we make our, our art, but our art in the making, it, it makes us, it transforms us. Um, you know, assuming you're not just going in circles and repeating yourself over and over <laughs> and over again. They, when we sit down to write something or to make something, it forces us into a space where we're confronting um, the, maybe the things that we don't want to confront. Mm. And and it's my first book, the, the title of which I shamelessly stole for my uh, podcast. My first book about this stuff was called A Beautiful Anarchy. And the subtitle was When the Life Creative Becomes the Life Created. So mm. I really believe that our our greatest piece of art can actually be our life itself. It's everything. It's in making a difference. It's in our relationships. It's in the impact that we make for other people. That to me is what it means to live artfully and creatively to bring transformation in, in whatever we do. And, and that sounds really lofty. I don't mean it in like, you know, always just the big stuff. I just mean in, in like the daily contacts we have with people and with the small things that we make. Uh, for me, it's about impact. Mm. I'm going to give you space to keep going if you want. But I also have so many questions that have sprung from that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so I made the mistake of... All right. <laughs> I'll just edit that out. I made the mistake of reading Start Ugly before A Beautiful Anarchy. So I was introduced to you first by listening to your podcast, A Beautiful Anarchy, which was recommended to me not only by my good friend Sean Howard, but also my friend Jordan Cobb. So shout out to both of them as thanks for introducing me. And then the first one of your books that I picked up was Start Ugly. And that was where I was introduced to this completely mind-blowing idea. And again, I hadn't read A Beautiful Anarchy yet. But this idea that creativity isn't all about making a masterpiece, and you say this very wonderfully in your book, it's not about making a masterpiece, it's not about making things so much as it is creating ourselves. That was just such an eye-opening eye thought for me about how, and that's why I wanted to start with this question, because really what we're doing when we're creating is creating our lives and ourselves. And that really gave me a little bit of, slash, a lot of peace with the fact that I didn't have to be so precious with my art. And I mm. love that you also talked about decapitalizing art and taking away that capital A from art. And now I'm just rambling because I am so excited about this concept, but that was such a huge breakthrough for me. How did you how did you come to that idea? How did you come to that realization that you weren't just composing photographs and writing books, but you were creating yourself? Um, well, <laughs> my life's been a bit of a zigzag. So uh, <laughs> when I when I left high, I've always been fairly introspective. I've always wanted to make a difference. And when I left high school, I, I went to the Amazon. I spent a summer building a, a school for street kids and, you know, fooling around, you know, and just whatever teenagers would do if they were spending a summer on the Amazon. <laughs> and uh, and when I came back, I went and I embarked on a, a what ended up being an effort to cram a four-year degree into five years, uh, but it was a theology degree. And mm. um, so, you know, talk about creative thinking. And and so I spent five years in exile on the cold Canadian prairies uh, with this stuff, but with the intent that I wanted to, I wanted to help people. But in that those studies introduced me to contemplative sources from, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago mm. up to now. And so reading, you know, reading poetry and reading, you know, 
scriptures of various kinds. And and so I've always had this kind of contemplative thought, but a, a thread that goes through all of that is the idea of redemption and transformation. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that, that I sort of twig to very early is that there's this idea that out, and I put it in the book, Beautiful Anarchy, there's this idea in, in Latin, it goes ex nihilo, nihilo fit, which means out of nothing, nothing comes. And you can sort of, you can look at that idea and, you know, you can use it as all kinds of justifications for all kinds of weird theology, but you can also <laughs> look at it and kind of say, okay, that means that the the art, the thing that is made comes from the maker. And so if we are making our art, you know, it, we spend so much time concentrating our efforts on, you know, making the masterpiece, mm. but it will only be as good as the artist himself or herself. The artists are the source of our work. And I think we just put way too much pressure on ourselves to make the thing rather than just letting ourselves... Art making is a journey of of being made. It's a journey of transformation. And when we get really precious about you know, capitalizing the word art and, and about the thing that we're putting into the world, we put so much pressure on ourselves. And so I wrote Start Ugly because I kind of felt like there are so many obstacles just to beginning the work. And and if we can if we can just get it started, whatever it is, whether you're writing a book or you know making a painting or a sculpture or whatever thing it is that you're making, it's going to happen the same way that we ourselves have become the people we are. It's going to start kind of ugly, you know. I don't care how much mm-hmm. you love babies and and I don't have children, so you know, here's my bias, but I don't <laughs> I don't think every child that's born into the world is uh, let, let me put it this way. I don't want to call babies ugly per se, <laughs> but they are we can all agree that they are only a hint of what they are going to become. You don't look at that screaming jelly covered, (laughs) you know, uh, naked lizard in your hand and go, oh, man, this one's ugly. Let's throw them back and start again. You know that 30 years from now, this beautiful, you know, person is going to be a completely different thing. Mm -hmm. We are a result of our mishaps and our missteps and our stories and our, you know, evolutionarily the result of our mutations. Mm -hmm. And so I think embracing mistakes and embracing the ugly starts, Anne Lamott talks a lot about writing first drafts. Yes. And, and I think that there's such wisdom and, and grace and possibility in looking at the beginning of a thing and giving ourselves the freedom just to see where it goes and to, you know, to pursue that. I have a, a, ma- a business manager and we, in our meetings very often, one of us will say, okay, I've got a really bad idea, but I'm going to put it out there. Because so often we, we, the first thing we do when we have a bad idea is we censor ourselves and go, oh no, that's, well, how do you even know? You haven't even said it. You haven't even written it down. You haven't put it into the world and you haven't subjected it to that great creative question what if? Okay, what if I do this? Yes, that's a terrible question, a terrible idea. But what if we tweaked it? What if it led to this? And what if we combined it with that? And I think we sabotage our own process mm-hmm. because we mistake the beginning 
for the ending. We mistake the expectations of that beautiful masterpiece at the end for the pile of whatever crappy raw materials we're starting with. And we throw our hands up and we go, oh, this one's not working. Well, how do you know? You haven't given it the time. And the task of bringing all that ugly raw material into the world and, you know, sort of figuring, digging through it and seeing what's there is so different than the very end task, which is the refinement of the thing when you do know where it's going and you've kind of, you've, you know, you've hit the messy middle, you've made your way through that. But to mistake the beginning of the process for the end, I think sabotages more artists. And I wanted to write a book that kind of gave a helpful nudge and a reminder that, you know what, it's good that it's ugly at the beginning and we should, we should make it ugly. We should throw all the ugliness on the table rather than trying to hide it. Absolutely. And, and it's so beautifully said and it's so beautifully said in the book as well. And this just, wow, everything you just said sort of set off an eruption of questions that I have for you. And, you know, one of those questions is there's this sense that this is such an ancient topic, right? People have been creating for forever mm-hmm. and people have been making art forever. So <laughs> part of me is just wondering what's wrong with us? Why haven't we internalized this wisdom yet that when you start, it doesn't have to be perfect. Are we just, is that just our impatience? Is that just the example that's been set for us? Like what, why are we like this? <laughs> well, I can't speak for you, Sarah, but I, I'm just, <laughs> I'm basically a doofus. I've decided that, <laughs> you know, that I'm just a bit of a moron and no, you, you know what I think it is? I think it's that what we create always, unless we're just repeating ourselves, what we create always happens in the context of the unknown. Even though mm. we've been there before, even though we should know better and we should learn these lessons, we <laughs> we still on the next go around, we're like, ah, yeah, but this one's different. It's like we forget. We have like mm. selective amnesia. We forget how hard things are and and we just kind of, we get to the next one and we're like, oh, why is this so hard? Well, it's always been hard. It's always, you've always been, because it's the unknown. Mm. And and that's, I think, why there's such a temptation for creative people to repeat themselves, because it is known. You finally, you know, bushwhacked your way through the understory. You've got a path and you're like, yes, I know where to go. Let's just camp out here and, you know, do circles around the campsite because it becomes familiar. But the problem is the the thrill of creativity and our best work happens when we're wrestling through that mm-hmm. unfamiliarity, through that uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we've been doing this for centuries, de- millennia. But I think not only do we forget our own, the lessons that we keep learning over and over <laughs> again, um, but I think when we look at those who've gone before us, or even contemporarily, we look at someone like Anne Lamott, who is so honest and self-deprecating in her work, um, as she talks about the writing process, if anyone can make us feel more human about this and more okay with it, it would be Anne. But yet we look at her and we go, well, of course she feels that way. She's amazing. She's written all these books. She's, you know, a New York Times bestselling. She's blah, blah. And we we have this internal script that dismisses all of these messages and ideas because maybe they seem like, you know, superhuman, maybe it feels mm. like, well, it, yeah, it applies to them because they don't have all of these problems. They're not sitting at the at the keyboard, you know, pulling their hair out. 
the way that I am. So I think we kind of believe that we're, there's this kind of exceptionalism, mm. but instead of, especially for creators, um, I, there's, instead of exceptionalism, like I'm better than everyone else, it's an exceptionalism that sort of like denigrates us. And, yeah. and, and so we, we, I think we just, maybe it's human nature. We just have to learn our lessons the hard way. And generally, if you're me, it's kind of the hard way and also over and over and over again. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, and same. that's that's okay. You know, it's it's the it's I think the, the when we stop being precious about this and acknowledge how just messy it is, it's very liberating. Mm. You know, I, I there I have no expectations on myself other than the ones really that I that I uh, put on myself or allow you know allow myself to kind of absorb. Um, but usually, even when I think it's other people's expectations, it's usually just another version of my expectations. Mm-hmm. I so I. I, I I think it just goes to our messy humanity and the fact that we really don't know that, you know, looking back, it's easy. Well, you know, that book practically wrote itself. Really? Do you remember how hard it was? You know, and so when you're staring down the next one, you're kind of looking back at this romanticized Mm. version of what happened. And so Start Ugly for me has been really has been about freedom. It's been about just every time we start a new thing, it's like this is Terra incognita. We don't know where we're, where we are, where we're going, and that's the adventure. That's the fun part. And it might end in disaster. Mm. It might end in <laughs> you know a uh, a really crappy book. But what if that is the step we needed to discover something about ourselves? Maybe it's a new skill. Maybe it's just we wrote one line that we went, oh, that's the thing I want to write. And then you scrap the other sixty thousand words and you start with that one line, and it becomes the thing mm-hmm. you know it's, it's it's iterative it's evolutionary and because that's the essential nature of creativity it's very freeing it is and i this was uh my 19 year old cat is sitting on the notes that i made but i i have so many uh things that i'm carrying around in my mind from your book and you say the word iterative and even the name of your book start ugly when i first picked it up I was like, well, I'm not starting a project, but I, I do want to read this book. And I'm. it was really the cover that drew me in. And I want to ask you a question about where in the heck you got this picture on the cover. But... Uh, well, let, let me let me answer that right, okay, yes, right away. Um, I'm dying because because my cover making process was also a kind of an ugly process as well, and I made a, a bunch of iterations. And finally, I just I I Google image searched ugly. Because I wanted some ideas about where I could take this cover. Because I wanted something that was kind of a little bit different and, you know, not precious. And yet I also kind of wanted something that was a throwback to a, a long tradition of, of art. And so the the cover image is The Ugly Duchess. It goes back to 1513. And it's, uh, I can't remember the actual name of the woman that it is meant to be of. She apparently was a real woman. And um, it was it was a parody. And I, the longer I've lived with this cover, the more I'm like, I'm not sure if it's if it's kind of funny or if it's a little bit unkind. But oh. nevertheless, nevertheless, she she is um, she is a significantly by our standards of beauty, a significantly ugly uh, person on the exterior. I'm sure she was a very nice person on the inside. But I just I was Google searching it. I really wanted an image that kind of grabbed people's attention and made them kind of, if not physically recoil, kind of go, ooh, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that is that is kind of ugly. Uh, because 
we do have strange standards of beauty, don't we? Mm-hmm. And I think it applies to our creative process as well. You know, we judge it as ugly, but what do we know? We've been in the, in the weeds with the book we're writing or the project we're working on or the painting. At a certain point, it's like you, you lose all objectivity, right? And you're just like, I don't even know. Is this crap? Is it not? So I was, those were the thoughts that were kind of going through my mind when, uh, when I just, you know, Google searched ugly and I saw this picture and I went, oh, it's perfect, you know? <laughs> um, but, but again, like I said, now, now that I've lived with it for a while, I'm like, I haven't decided, decided whether this was a very nice painting or not, but nevertheless, it's, uh, it's stood the test of time. It has endured. And who am I to say that, uh, you know, it's not, uh, good enough for my book. Absolutely. It's, well, it's definitely the reason that I went with that one first. I just, I had to know it was between these covers. I just, I had to know. That that brings me to sort of the, before I sidetracked us and asked about this cover, I was thinking about, you know, you had mentioned the word iterative and we, we talk about picking up this book and it being about beginnings, but it's not just the beginning of a project that we're talking about. It's beginning every day. It's having to start every day. And, you know, you talk about this selective amnesia that we have, this exceptionalism. And we face those challenges every day. We forget, oh, this was really hard yesterday. I just remember being in flow and it feeling so good. And then Mm -hmm. I sit down the next day and I'm like, oh, the flow's not here immediately. And now I have all these things to fight and I have to, you know, start ugly all over again. And didn't I already Mm -hmm. do this yesterday? And how Sisyphean is this? And why am I like this? And then we, well, at least I start swirling down the, well, maybe I'll knock out some easy tasks first before I get to my creative work. And so all of this is to say, I really... I really appreciate the distinction of a linear process where every day you're starting, but you're carrying on from the day before versus an iterative process where you actually are starting anew and afresh every day, um, having experienced a little bit of that amnesia overnight and realizing you have to get back into your project again and you have to rediscover the flow again. And so I was going to ask questions about flow, but I think what I want to ask is how do you start every day? And when you face resistance, when you face the exhaustion of having to jump into the fight one more day, how do you deal with that? (laughs) Uh, Whiskey. Um, (laughs) All right. Next question. I'm kidding. (laughs) I, um, well, it, it's infuriating. I mean, I hear it in your voice. It, it, you go up into, you know, wherever you write and you get in the flow, things are going so well, the muse has shown up and then you leave for the day and you're like, you turn to the muse and you're like, all right, you stay here. Mm-hmm. And then you come back in the morning and sh- she's, she's gone away, you know? And you're like, but she's buggered off. Like, I thought we were doing so well. Mm-hmm. And and the way that I deal with it uh, in my more mature moments, and every day is not, does not represent this, but is, is a change of thinking that this is not, when I sit down in my chair to write, and I'm, I'm quite disciplined, I, uh, because I found that works for me. I put time on the calendar. I'm like, okay, today, between this time and this time, I am writing. And I'm very specific about wh- whether I'm writing for my podcast or my mm. latest book or whatever I'm doing. And uh, what has been sabotaging for me is when I sit down with the ex- expectation that I am going to, well, that I'm going to pick up from yesterday. I, that's not what it is. It's, 
It's not producing. It's not trying to create something great. I don't have on my calendar a block that says write something great. I just have write. Mm. And and so for me, it's it has really helped to shift the paradigm into a um, kind of a mental model that involves uh, exploration. Mm. And so it's really sitting down and going, let's see what comes out of the fingertips today. Like, let's see where it goes. Because inevitably, I mean, I know the bigger themes of what I'm writing about. I know where I need to get or where I think I need to get. Mm. But sitting down with the rather than this heavy expectation of, you know, duplicating the brilliance of last of, you know, yesterday, I sit down and it's to me, it's it's very, I think, in metaphors. And for me, it's like digging. Mm. I just get out my shovel and I start digging through the dirt. I know that the gold, the gold's, I'm not going to sit down and get my shovel out and then look down and go, oh, look, there it is. The gold, it's all just sitting on the surface. Oh, nice. The gold is like, it's way down there. And you've got to shovel through a lot of dirt and a lot of weird stuff. And you hit something and you think it's gold and you find out it's just, you know, an old thermos or something. You're like, oh, okay, well, that's not it. But when I think about it in terms of exploration, in terms of digging, it encourages my curiosity. Mm. It lowers my expectations because I know that I'm that I have the freedom to start ugly. And usually the more ugly I'm willing to start, the more quickly it all accelerates the, because I don't procrastinate. I don't think, oh, well, you know, I should really maybe I'll just check my my email or, you know, I've, I've written 10 words. I think I'll reward myself and go down and make more coffee. <laughs> like it, it's just uh, the mental games that we play with ourselves are, are really quite astonishing. But if you can just convince yourself that your task is not to create something amazing and polished because that's way down the road. Today's task is just to take whatever, you know, you started with yesterday, set that kind of expectation aside and go, I wonder where it goes from here. Because I don't know. I really do not know where it goes from here. I might think I do, but let's face it. I mean, if, if folks, if you're listening and you're a writer, you know that very, very seldom does the work at the end of the day reflect where you thought it was going at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Right? It just, it, it's like you get to the end, and you're like, huh, so that happened. Well, if we kind of assume at the very beginning that we have no idea what we're actually doing and we just put it out there and go, let's see where it leads. I don't I don't know. But there's such freedom in that. And because then if we don't have the expectations, then the first goofy thing you write that isn't quite right, then you're not beating yourself up. Then that inner voice isn't going, well, that was stupid. That's nothing like, come on, what are you thinking? You know, and all that, all those voices we carry around from in my case, you know, things my dad said or things mm. kids in elementary school said, you know, th- those people have long forgotten they said those stupid things. You know, what, what do you mean? Well, what was I thinking, Dad? I'm four years old. I was thinking four-year-old thoughts. Yeah. And yet I carry that voice around with me. If you can lower your own expectations and just go, David, your job is to start ugly. Who among us can't write a really ugly sentence mm. or make an ugly photograph or whatever it is that you do creatively? If that's my job is to start ugly, I'm like, I'm already starting on a win. Right? <laughs> Look, I did it. Something really ugly. But it's going to evolve. It's going to get better. And later on, yeah, I'm going to go back and delete the first two paragraphs, three paragraphs, whatever. Mm. Maybe at the end of an hour of writing, I only come up with a couple really great lines that I love and all the rest is crap. Well, it's not crap. It's just the stuff that I needed to get out in order. It's the stuff, the dirt I needed to move out of the way in Mm. order to get to the good stuff. And I, I just find it really liberating. That doesn't mean 
that I'm, you know, not filled with angst all the time. I mean, you know, <laughs> why, how would I create if I were not? But it's it's kind of an angst management tool. <laughs> I love that. It's an angst management tool. That might be my the title of a, a blog post in the future, my angst management tool. Please do I that. actually had, I had a, uh, uh, as a side note, I had a, because I do these, you know, I teach these photography workshops and I, I have been writing blogs forever. And, and uh, at one point someone, because I like encouraging people to comment and whatever. And someone put, finally put in my blog, someone wrote, you know, I'm just, I'm done. I can't, I can't deal with your, your, no, his line was your angst is exhausting. <gasps> and, and now I'm a very positive person, but once in a while, I, I'm, I'm also fairly transparent, right? So yeah. I had written a blog post just about the challenges I was facing. I was photographing in Kathmandu and finding it challenging. And, and his line was your angst is exhausting. And I thought, boy, you think my angst is exhausting. You should try being me. Like I'm worn right out. And after that, I thought, I really need t-shirts that says, you know, my angst is exhausting. Uh, anyway, there's there's the next great merchandising idea for someone out there. I love it. Well, I put it in your shop. I'll buy 10 um, and give them away on the show. It, it's just, it's, what a strange comment for you because this whole time that we've been talking, I've been thinking, how do you stay this positive? Because, you know, part of what, what gets me when I'm creating is like, okay, yes, you're, you're doing all this digging and there is a gold nugget at the very bottom, but is that gold nugget really worth all the time and effort and pain that went into creating it? And I know, and, and that's, again, why it was so freeing partially for me in reading this book to think that, oh, it's not about production. It's about becoming. It's about learning. It's about embracing this process. But at the same time, it can get so frustrating when, oh, at the end of the day, you know, I worked so hard and I only have 10 salvageable words. So you have that. You also have people who are ambitious and want to make things that are great. How do you, uh, I guess, did you like intentionally and purposefully sort of implement this optimism or is that just something you've always had or something that you've chosen to do? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I've never thought about it that way before. But so to put on an, a very old hat that I haven't worn for a long time and to kind of go back to some of the thinking I did in theology school, yeah. there's this idea that faith is the absence of doubt. And I would transfer that to the idea that, you know, positivity is the absence of negativity, that, you know, optimism is like the, the person that's optimistic is not the person that is pessimistic. Mm -hmm. And I would actually argue that uh, faith can only exist in the, it's a reaction to doubt. It can only exist in the context of doubt. Mm -hmm. And so in the creative process, your faith and your ability to your ability to exercise that faith it can only be as um, it can only be there in proportion to the doubt that is there. Mm. And certainly, that's my experience, and so I choose to believe that. Again, it's not an optimism that says, "You know what? This is all going to work out." Because I haven't got the foggiest <laughs> idea whether that's true. I really don't. But I do know that I love the journey. I love digging in the dirt and finding that unlikely thing and going, "Huh." I had no idea I was going to come up with this, you know, and at the end of the day, knowing to extend the metaphor well past its breaking point, <laughs> you know, that I, I'm a better digger today than I was yesterday because I've just put the time in and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed kind of moving dirt from one place to another and discovering something new about myself. I will write something and go, huh, 
I didn't, I mean, how many of you have written something and then sat back later and reread and gone, I didn't even know I knew that. Mm-hmm. Like it just, I, I read my, uh, I reread my first book years ago on the way I was heading out off to do a trip. And I thought, you know, I'm going to take the book and, and reread it because I was making photographs for, so I was rereading the, the, the script for this book, the manuscript. And I was rereading it and it was like, I was having these revelations. I was actually taking notes. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's really good, right? And I'm like, whoa, what are you taking notes? You were the guy that wrote that. I think that the when we make things, we are, uh, if we're doing it, uh, you know, with with rigor, when we are engaging the process, we are unearthing things back there that we didn't even know mm-hmm. were there. And so I find that a source of hope, that there's there's hidden stuff in there that I didn't even know there. It's like, you know, you, you when you open the fridge and you look in there for like 10 seconds, you're like, oh, there's nothing to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, well, yes, there is. There's just nothing convenient or easy in there. But if you take out that stuff, you've probably got enough to make something pretty interesting. And I've learned that the initial disappointment of opening my mental fridge, as it were, and kind of going, oh, there's nothing in there. If I take the time and apply some rigor, the real interesting stuff for me is getting to the end and going, wow, that was kind of cool. I had no idea those ingredients went together. Or, you know, there's because the expectation isn't there anymore. The expectation that today I have to make this really big, great thing. And I feel it. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a podcast episode that I've taken way too long on and <laughs> I've scrapped twice and I'm scratching my head. And, but I remind myself every day, today's task was not to write something amazing. Today's task was just to write, to start ugly and see where it goes. And tomorrow you'll pick up the thread. And when I do look back with some kind of objectivity, I realize, you know what? I, I haven't failed yet. Like, I, I mean, true, actual Honest to God, the, you know, the, um, uh, the, the art police are going to come to my door and drag me off because they've all discovered I'm an imposter. They haven't shown up yet, even though every day I feel that way. Uh-huh. Every day I'm like looking over my shoulder going, oh, God, did I just hear the, someone knock on the door? Like, is it the imposter police today? It's ha- of course not. You know, we're all faking it to some degree. And, and I think that's OK. This, there's this whole idea that oh, maybe I'm just faking. Of course you're faking it. We're all faking it because we're exploring new territory. The rules for the game that we're creating today haven't yet been written. The map hasn't been drawn. We are all faking it. And I think there's a great amount of freedom in that. So I don't know if I'm, I don't think I'm actually an optimistic person. I think I'm actually pretty fundamentally pessimistic on some <laughs> level, but that my optimism such as it is, is a response to that it's mm-hmm. the it's the it's the faith that gets flexed in the presence of doubt not just oh he's just a really always cheerful person no actually i'm pretty i i i've encountered enough trial and obstacle in my life to know that things just can be really really friggin hard but that there is, you know, if, I don't know if you've read uh, the book Flow um, or Flow Theory, but the heard. idea, the idea really, and I recommend anyone that writes at some point dig into uh, the author's name is impossible to spell. It's even harder to pronounce, but it's Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he's a, I believe he's a Hungarian American sociologist, psychologist kind of guy, and he's he developed this idea of flow theory, and he talks about flow as a state of optimal performance happening 
Um, it's not some magical thing. It's not waiting for the muse to show up. It's when you focus and when you work at a, at a level of challenge, when you're mm. challenging yourself and and not like, you know, just mailing it in when you are like working basically up to the limits of your abilities, uh, anything less than that and you just get bored, anything more than that and you, there's anxiety. But if you can stay on that kind of that level where you're working in challenge and you're focusing on it and you've turned your, you know, your phone off and you're not checking Facebook, you know, those other self-sabotaging things we do. Mm -hmm. It's the challenge. It's not when it's easy. So when things are getting hard, that's not the time to go, ah, you know, I forget it. I'm, I'm going to go down to the kitchen and, you know, make a bagel. That's when you, you go, there's hints that flow might be around the corner because it's the challenge. It's when you get really get in there and creativity is like a muscle. It needs something to flex against. It needs the friction and the tension. And so rather than looking at the really hard stuff in life, you know, like Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill us gives something, gives us something to blog about. And <laughs> I, I really believe that's true. And so I don't look at the hard stuff as, the sign that this isn't working, I look at it as the sign that it might, it just might, because that challenge is a precondition for flow. Mm. This is so, so beautiful and so necessary. And now I'm sorry, it's just like my brain is kind of still fixated on this give and take sort of balance between you know it's it's building muscle it's painful but it's also necessary and it helps us get stronger and this is now i'm just like blathering on about this amazing analogy that's okay that's what i did for the the entire uh manuscript of start ugly (laughs) yeah it's just from from beginning to end it's exactly me blathering on about this analogy but but you know there is there is and can be such joy in it if you show up at the gym Mm. with the expectation that's going to be easy and go god i'm starting to sweat well this can't be working well no (laughs) you're starting to sweat this is where you double down and really push through it and kind of find a uh find some kind of joy in that challenge where you're like you're like okay this is hard but you know what i think i'm getting it like mm-hmm. i think i think i just wrote a word that i might that might actually stay in the book like I, oh i that led to this and i don't i don't know if it's our expectation or if we work in a culture that you know there's this whole myth of the the the, the prodigy and the genius and we see these you know we see these movies where everything works out in the end and it was yes there was a challenge in the middle but let's face it it was probably because the guy just was unnaturally talented and, <laughs> and we're not and so we look at it and go ah why is it so hard why is it so hard for me when it's so easy for everyone else and it's we're using external metrics mm-hmm. you know the thing that we see of other people and Stephen King and oh my god look at all the books he's written and and we're using those external metrics to judge internal mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. and it's just you can't compare and yet we do and that's why i think and this is a you know completely different sermon but i think social media is profoundly can be profoundly destructive yeah. to individuality and creativity and instead of you know going oh you know what i'm I, this is hard i'm going to take a break and get on a facebook that is the last thing that we should be doing yeah. the last thing that we should be doing is is kind of pausing the work Put sort of setting the muse aside and going, you wait here, I'm going to go compare myself against someone else. It's just, it is so toxic for us. And mm. 
uh, that's, you know, that's probably a, a whole other conversation. That's not to say that social media can't be a vehicle for connection, et cetera, et cetera. But I do, I worry that, that the cultural influences on creative people, I think this is why some of our best work is done in solitude and not listening to the other voices while we are creating. You can do it while, you know, you're in the beginning stages and while you're mulling ideas and we need inputs, we need to hear other voices. And But when you are writing, when you are pr- creating in any capacity, I think the last thing we should be doing is listening to other voices because they're always going to be louder than, than we have such a hard time hearing our own voice. Mm. And, and that is the voice we need to be listening to. And, and yes, struggling to hear and figure out exactly what that voice is saying. But the minute we start listening to other voices, I'm just a big proponent of when you create, you are in, you are in a, uh, if you don't want to use the word sacred, it's Mm. certainly a, um, well, I'll use the word sacred. You're in this place where you need to fiercely protect yourself and whatever the process that you engage in is you need to silence other voices. You need to be, um, I'm struggling for my words here, but you need to kind of build a fence around it and be like, this is my time to focus because the minute I don't focus, uh, flow is gone Mm -hmm. and I'm going to have to start all over. So why people, you know, why people feel they can write. And I hear so many people like, oh, I was right in the middle of the flow. And then I got this email. I'm like, what are you doing checking your email? (laughs) Like you can't, there's a great book by a guy named Cal Newport called Deep Work. And uh, Cal's funny because he's the most unlikely guy to speak to creative, you know, so-called creative people, right? He's he, his author picture. He's, you know, got a button down Oxford shirt and ch- khaki chinos. And, you know, and he's just kind of looking at him going, he's, and he's a computer science guy. And yet this book, Deep Work, and some of the, his other books are so valuable because he basically says, like, turn it all off. You need you need isolation. You need silence. You know, Yes, of course, we all work with different rhythms and maybe you need some music in the background or whatever. But we do not multitask as well as we think we do, do we? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and focus is another one of those uh, preconditions for flow. Mm-hmm. You can have all the challenge you want, but unless you have time and focus, you will, if you get into flow, you'll be out of it again so quickly. And it takes us a while to ramp up into flow. And it takes us after we've sort of distracted ourselves. It's, it's like it, it, um, it pulls us out of flow and then you tref the effort to pull yourself back in. I don't know. I've I've got in one comment I've gone from the dangers of social media and comparison to time management <laughs> to uh, clearly I need to, you know, get back on the rails here, but um I I do think things like dis- any kind of distraction um is it, it can be very self-sabotaging because what we're looking for when we jump into out of flow and into the <laughs> cesspool of Facebook or social media of any kind is either some kind of comparison or mm-hmm. something just to distract us from how hard it is. Mm-hmm. And the minute we do that, we're not in problem solving mode. We're not saying, oh, this is really, this is challenging. I really need, you know, to overcome this particular problem that I'm working on. What could I be like? And then trying and risking and Instead, we're just like, we start the doom scroll and Mm -hmm. 20 minutes go by and we go, whoa, what what happened there? Absolutely. And it's, you know, gosh, it's so interesting. I always, I I have this thought about the internet that, you know, it hasn't always been this way, right? It hasn't always been like this global echo chamber of conformity, or at least maybe I'm 
choosing not to see it that way or my experience has not been that way. But I kind of remember like earlier days of the internet when it was more a place where you could like find your people, your subculture. And through those conversations, not necessarily compare yourself, but refine your voice. And I think that there's such a fine line between discovering who you are through, like you said, that communication and and through conversation versus comparing yourself and saying, oh, I should be more like that instead of, oh, I'm discovering who I am. And I don't think that we're really taught, you know, to develop ourselves and to develop our voices. I talk with a lot of new and emerging writers who don't understand what it means to form their voice. They say, oh, is that just like how I sound when I'm writing? And mm. no, it's so many it's so many different things, but I don't think we know how to formulate that. And, you know, the internet, I think, used to, and again, this might just be completely my own experience, but, you know, my formative years of being in like sci-fi forums and like other places where they were very, very niche, Um, and subcultural versus now where it's like, oh, I have to conform with everything. I think that there's been a little bit of a shift there so that maybe people who are my age who went out to the internet searching for themselves and finding themselves a little bit are now going out to the internet uh, looking for validation and conversation and just finding, you know, this wall of conformity. And I guess we haven't learned to look away yet. I don't even (laughs) know if that's the right thing, but I, I really admire your ability to just not even engage at all. I loved reading in Start Ugly, you share a little bit of your writing habit. And I don't know if this is still your habit, but making coffee, going up the stairs, turning off the phone and opening up the writing program. Do you struggle with that? Or has that that habit become so ingrained that you don't even think about email until sometime in the afternoon? <laughs> Um, no, I actually, contrary to, let's throw the cards on the table. I, I read these articles about, you know, how to, how to be your best self and have your best morning and Mm -hmm. all of this nonsense. And, and the, the very first thing from every article, as though they're all clipping and pasting from some, you know, divine source is don't start the day with email. And I'm like, uh, okay, if that's what works for you. But for me, I start my day with email. Mm-hmm. I usually wake up. My wife is still asleep and I don't want to wake her up, but I need some time to, you know, kind of get my, clear the dust out. And I start with email. I just, now admittedly, I've taken myself off so many mailing lists. There's mm. usually like five emails there. Most of them are actually for me. And um, and, and I just start and I kind of look at them and I go, okay, you know what? I can deal with this later. I can forward this on to my manager. I can, it just clears that. So I, but what I found is that if I don't do that somewhere in the back of my head, when mm. I do get up and have my coffee and I'll, you know, while I'm waiting for the, for the coffee and stuff, I, I will check in on the world, uh, such as it is. I'm off social now, so I don't do that, but I'll, you know, I'll check, um, the I'll check my email and and what it does is when I get up to my room and I cross the threshold and I put my coffee down and I open my laptop I close everything except I write in Evernote these days which is not ideal I used to write in Scrivener which I really like but somehow I just I just got out of the habit and and what I liked about Evernote was that it synced across my devices which uh, at the time Scrivener didn't do Mm -hmm. and so I just you know I just open Evernote and I make sure everything else is closed. My, um, I have do not disturb set on my, all my devices. 
everything's off. There's no ringing. There's no pinging. The world cannot reach me. If it's mm -hmm. important, they can have me in two hours from now when I emerge. But at the same time, I'm also not in the back of my head thinking, I wonder what's sitting in my inbox. Mm -hmm. um, or at least, you know, I mean, of course, things might come in while I'm writing, but I have, I've kind of cleansed my palate. I've, I've yeah. cleared everything off. And so I think all of the productivity tips and tricks and hacks that you're going to find, they apply only as much as they suit your personality and your needs. And there are days when I get up and I just do all the, the stupid things that you need to do <laughs> as a as a creative person who's also engaged in commerce and building an audience and interacting with people. And, and so there are some days when it's just, I, I don't, you know, the most creative thing I write is a, is an email or a blog mm -hmm. post. Um, but actually not even the blog post, the blog posts are dedicated writing time, but yes, when I write, I sit down and I close the world out because I cannot, the minute I'm in flow and something pulls me out, it, it just, I know when yeah. I'm in flow and you know how you just, you look, you can just, you can almost see that gold nugget around the corner mm -hmm. and you're like, you're, and then you're gone. And it's like, you know how we say, oh, you know, I'll, I don't have to write that down. I, I'll, it's so good. I'll remember it. That's <laughs> always the thing, always the thing you're going to forget. Right. And later yeah. on, you can be like, oh my God, I had a glimpse of glory. What was it? I can't, oh my God. And then, you know. I just, I can't do that to myself. So I, sh I shut it all out and it, there's 24 hours a day in a day and I can distract myself when being distracted is less of an issue. But while I'm doing my, you know, what Cal Newport calls my deep work mm -hmm. while I'm doing that, I I'm jealously protective of my time and my focus because focus is a resource just like time Oof. and they need to coincide. They need to coincide. It can't be just like, well, today I'll apply my time, but not my focus. They, it needs to be dedicated time, dedicated focus. I don't know anyone that can produce uh, creative work and get through all of the other nonsense we need to get through on our way to flow. I don't know anyone that can do that in just like the scraps of their day mm -hmm. while also checking Facebook. Mm -mm. I just, I don't think it can be done. Our brains like actually physiologically, our brains just aren't meant to do that. They don't work that way. Yeah. I, I know this is true because I have experienced it. <laughs> don't, don't we all, oh my right? Gosh. And yet we're our, our own worst enemy. And we often cloak it in, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to, I, God, I hate the word. I mean, I use it all the time, but on some level, I just hate the word inspiration mm. because it, we use it as an excuse or a crutch. Like, oh, you know what? I'm just, I'm really stuck right now. I'll go onto Facebook and see if I can't, you know, find some inspiration. I'll go to photographers all the time. I'll go to Instagram and find some inspiration. No, you won't. You'll go and you'll find comparison. You'll you'll finish your time on on Instagram feeling worse about yourself than when you started. And if you do find inspiration, it's like, well, what are you doing getting inspiration? Like, is it, oh, look at what they're doing. I'll do something like that. Right. Well, it's someone else's. Yeah. You're not going to find your voice in the voices of other people. You just are not. And that does not mean that those things are totally useless, but they, they have their place. And if they mm -hmm. have their place, there's also a place where they do not belong. And that is in our actual efforts to create where we need to sit down with ourselves and the hard work of discovering our own voice in whatever mm -hmm. ugly words we end up, you know, spew kind of brain dumping onto the page. Yeah. Discovering our voice, becoming ourselves, becoming the, the artist that's sort of inside of us. Like this is just, okay. I, 
Speaking of time, which you were talking about earlier, I want to be very respectful of your time. Do you have time for one more question? Oh, I have, because I, have... I could listen to you all day. <laughs> uh, I have uh, I have all the time in the world. So you just... Oh, don't uh, tell yeah. me. That's very dangerous. Yeah. Okay. So uh, no, I only have exactly until we finish this podcast. Okay. <laughs> You're fantastic. I, I appreciate... I've been thinking a lot about authenticity and not just because it's a buzzword, but I've been thinking about how we are authentic and how we are honest. And I just, I feel like that came through, that comes through in your podcast, A Beautiful Anarchy, which if you are not already listening to that, you completely should be. It's amazing. Um, And also in your book, Start Ugly, and presumably in your other works. And I just want to say, like, I can I can feel it coming through. You know, I've, I've read, without throwing anyone under the bus, you know, I've read a lot of books about creativity. And, and often when people say, like, oh, you know, this is how I do my work, sometimes I find myself thinking, like, really, you do that every day? Are you a real person? <laughs> um, so I just want to say thank you, David, for being a real person and for presenting yourself just as a human being who goes through the same struggles that everyone else does. To that end, I, I want to ask, what is it? What are you struggling with right now in your creative life? Wow. Um, <laughs> can, can I say everything? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just, just, but, but only that. Just that. That one small. Only everything. Small, okay, small thing. Um, so small. I am. I, well, there's just the daily struggle of asking myself whether. Uh, you know, am I repeating myself? Am I just, Mm. am I just camping out? Because I do have this fear that I don't know if you're a Calvin and Hobbes fan, but the uh, the cartoonist Bill Watterson, when he, when he finally retired much to everyone's shock and dismay, uh, one of the reasons he later gave is he felt like he had nothing new to contribute. He was just, and this is his expression. He was just mowing the lawn, going over the same patch over and over again. And, I fear becoming as a photographer, as a, a writer, whatever my next incarnation as a creative is going to be. Uh, I did a 12 year career in comedy before this. And I, so I have no problem just kind of jumping the fence when I feel like I want to explore what's on the other side. <laughs> but I, um, I worry about uh, being the kind of photographer or writer that ends up camping out and, you know, creating a boxed set. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the, that's that's your that's the apex of your latest creative efforts is a box set that really is just the same thing with new packaging. Um, I worry about that, not because it's not commercially viable, not because it wouldn't make me some money, but because it wouldn't make me happy. It wouldn't. And right. happy is the wrong word. I don't think the pursuit of happiness is actually terribly valuable. It's more about the pursuit of meaning for me and, you know, the pursuit of that challenge and growing into a more complex person. I I worry that if I don't challenge myself enough that I will one day look back and see a missed opportunity, you know, like I said, Mm. you know, just kind of camping out. So my struggle is just not to try to find not just new ways of saying the same old thing, but personally going into new territory. And I think the only way we can do that is with a healthy view towards taking risks and saying, okay, you know, this could, I used to do a lot of like four by fouring in my Jeep and there's always people in the Jeep club. It was always like, uh, you want to, might want to put your seatbelt on. I just want to try something, right? (laughs) I'm just going to, I just got to try something. And, And it's like, okay, all right. And you know, the subtext is parenthetically, 
this might not work. <laughs> and, you know, which is the reason for putting the seatbelt on. And I think that's a healthy perspective, that that kind of playful, you know, remember when you were a kid, you just, you just played, you just, and you, yeah. there was always the sense that, this just might not work. We didn't always think it through to the end, you know, as, as, as boys, we would, you know, we would make a ramp out of old plywood and stuff and we'd get our bike and we'd back up, you know, half a kilometer and we pedal as fast as we could. And we really never thought any further than <laughs> the, you know, than pedaling as fast as we could and trying to, you know, hit the jump after that. It's like, what happens now? I don't know. And uh, I think there's a lot of freedom there. There's, there's that yeah. l- that loss of preciousness. I, I think, you know, Helen Keller said life is either a daring adventure or it's nothing. And hmm. it's the, it's, I don't, we're not going to get to the end of life and like get an award for returning the rental car without a ding. Right. We don't get to the end and, and, you know, whatever goes on in the afterlife or, or not, or, you know, maybe it's just the few seconds at the end where our consciousness fades. No one is going to check us in and kind of make sure that we got there safely. You know, mm-hmm. without a scratch, without taking risks. You know, I, I had a girlfriend years and years ago that kind of I was fretting about something. And she's like, you know, we don't make it out alive, you know, <laughs> make it out of this alive. Right. Like like he, and, and it sounds like such a morbid thing to say, but it was so liberating just to go. Yeah, I, I guess so. You know, and there's this wonderful book for for writers that and it's not just for screenwriters, but there's a have you read story by Robert McKee? No, but I'm writing it down right now. It's it's fantastic. He's a he's kind of the guy when it comes to writing and um, thinking about screenplays. And I don't know if he's you know he's an older guy. I don't know if there are more contemporary voices now. But um, have you seen the movie Adaptation? Yes. Okay, so he's the guy that leads the story seminar. Oh. Um, or or he's he's played by uh, Brian Cox in that movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, by the way, for those of you who have not seen the movie Adaptation, don't be thrown off by the fact that Nicolas Cage not only plays one character, but plays two. He actually is really, I'm not a Nick Cage fan, but in this movie, he's frigging brilliant. And you really must see this movie, uh, especially actually because it talks about evolution and it's it ties into this whole conversation. But this guy, Robert McKee, he wrote a book called Story and it's thick. It's monstrous. But he cuts to the chase very quickly in this book and says, you know, if you're not motivated by all these other things we're talking about, think about the fact that, and this is, he kind of gets to this kind of point of talking about, it's like you've got one life to live and you're on a rail, a train track and the train is coming towards you. What do you really want to be writing about, experiencing, you know, it's, we tend to get so into ourselves that we forget that when it comes to risk taking, uh, it's now or never. And there is no such, I call it on safety. There is mm. no such thing, either personally or otherwise. And you have one chance to write. I saw Robert McKee at one point at a book signing and he, in a copy of now, uh, lost, he just wrote, write the truth. And he signed his name wow. and he was talking about these deeper things, like the things that really actually matter. Do we have time in our life, however long, and then this is the problem, we don't actually know how long we've got, but even if we lived, you know, even if I live another 30 years, do I have time to occupy myself with anything less than something that is deeply honest, deeply true, that's, that's reveals something about me that, yeah, is maybe a little bit scary or maybe it's a lot scary. 
all of the cliches, all of the trivialities have been written about elsewhere, right? They're what we call content and they're on social <laughs> media for everyone. But don't we want something more? Don't we want mm. something that that has a contains a piece of us in it, like a living, breathing, bleeding piece of us in it when we write? That is, to me, is so much more valuable. And the effort to access that and to overcome all the voices that are going, dear God, don't share that with the world. That to me is the daily, the daily struggle. So when you ask, you know, what's your big struggle? It is big. It's the, mm-hmm. I think it's, but I think it's the human struggle to reconcile what we believe about ourselves with what we are learning about ourselves and what life throws our way. And we've just, we've got this one amazing chance as writers to put that in a form that other people can find courage in. Mm-hmm. that they can find hope in and feel ultimately like like they're not alone and they read these things that are hard for us to to write down that are hard for us not just because we can't find the right words but because as uh, Nick Hornby once said, you know, the effort is to F the ineffable. And <laughs> and that's like, that's what we do, right? We're trying to F the ineffable, trying to put into words something that is not put into wordable. And yeah. that to me is is struggle enough for, you know, in the hopes that someone else one day will read my words and in that find a sense of I'm not alone and someone else struggles with this and find maybe just a little bit more courage to do the same and to, you know, to pass the gift on and keep the gift moving. Mm, I love that insight as a gift to be paid forward, knowing and understanding and becoming. Oh, my gosh. And it breaks my heart a little bit to hear that about Bill Watterson. I didn't I didn't know that he had gotten to that point where he felt like his work was repetitious or it just didn't have any more to give because Oh, yeah, I don't, boy. I don't, I don't know that he felt that it didn't. I think okay. he felt that he was on a threshold where it would become mm. it would become that thing that he feared. And mm. um, you know, there's okay. a there there's a lot in in the story. I mean, he's don't feel bad for Bill. He's doing just he's okay, doing good. Just, <laughs> just fine. But he got to the place, like, you know, I I got to a place in my comedy career where mm. one day I was I loved it. I adored being on on stages in front of crowds. I thought it was just, and making like making 2000 people laugh together is the most hypnotic, magical. I have no risk of going on drugs ever in my life because yeah. <laughs> I've had something far better. Yes. Um, but there came a point when I just went, you know what? I'm done with this. I remember distinctly, mm-hmm. I was sitting on a plane heading for a gig in Texas and I went, ah, I, I, mm. I just, and the magic, you know, it's like the thrill is gone and that's okay. The thrill will be in something else. And, but importantly, I I think we need to recognize when we're standing on that threshold about to leap into the unknown, we face it every day, right? We stand on that threshold when, when we sit down at our, at our laptops or whatever your work process is, it is the temptation to, uh, look back. Mm-hmm. And kind of hedge our bets and go. You know what? I'm good here. Or I don't. I don't know what is about to come out of my brain. I don't know what's about to happen. But let's see where it leads. That's risk, and that takes courage. You know, all of these articles on Huff Post and stuff about you know how to be more creative. None of them address the real issue, which is 
creativity is an act of vulnerability, of transparency, of courage. Mm -hmm. Those are the real soft skills of creativity. You can, you can have the best laptop and know all the best words, but unless you are willing to be courageous in your process. So that's, I think, Bill's choice to to leap into the unknown and leave behind something that was working for him mm. and just go, it's it's done. Because as much as starting is hard, finishing can be really traumatic as well. Getting mm. to the point where you're like, oh God, now what? You know, you're staring into the fog and going, I have no idea. Like this thing that I've just written as hard as it was, it was kind of safe because I knew what it was. Yeah. And the further along I got, the more I knew what I thought it was and it was becoming. And, you know, and now it's now it's done and we move forward and it's like i thought i i thought i'd gone through this all before why why am i now again having to you know find the courage to do this why am i taking you know reevaluating my relationship with risk and fear and all of that stuff it's baby it's a everyday kind of thing you know mm -hmm. it's just you look in the mirror and you take a deep breath and you go let's see where it goes today not not to make a masterpiece just to start just it is enough to start. And that is where I would like to end. David, this has been such a, an honor and a privilege for me. Thank you. You are so Oh my welcome. gosh, so much for your words, for, for writing your books, for taking your photography. I don't even know if that's the right word for that, but this has been such a beautiful conversation. My listeners are just, they're going to be besides themselves. It's Fantastic. Um, I, I do want to promote every single thing that you've ever done. Uh, we talked a little bit about sending people to your podcast, A Beautiful Anarchy, which mm -hmm. I will once again, <laughs> for like the third or fourth time this episode, encourage you to go listen to. Thank you. Um, I also know that uh, you can pick up your own copy of Start Ugly over at startuglybook.com. Uh, and you can listen to the podcast at abeautifulanarchy.com. And then, David, you also have a biweekly email for creatives uh, who want to hone their skill at building and serving their audiences. And I would love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I um, with I, I could talk all day. It's a whole other subject. <laughs> but yeah, what I have I'm found here for is it. Cr creative people they want to put their work out into the world. And there's this common myth that you know, oh, my art will speak for itself, and it. Uh, doesn't. No, it does <laughs> and, not. No. <laughs> and, and so, but we're so, un we can be so uncomfortable with the idea of marketing and mm -hmm. self-promotion. And, and I mean, uh, reasonably so we put our heart and soul into what we make and then to finish it off and put a bow on it, you know, that with marketing, it's like, uh, it feels like we got to go take a shower <laughs> afterwards. And, and yet I don't think it needs to be that way. In fact, I know it doesn't. You know, I've spent a, as, as a creative, I've never really had a real job. I had a, a brief stint in Kentucky Fried Chicken that I generally don't like to talk about. But Are you serious? Um, oh, my gosh. I, I did very briefly. <laughs> but we do what we need to to pay the bills. We do. And yep. uh, anyway, I've been I've spent my entire adult life, the last 30 years plus now, uh, building audiences around me. And so I don't think about markets. I think about audiences. I think about real people. I think of my work as a gift. And so I created something called the Audience Academy, which is newly started. I think I've just sent out my third or my, my fourth one. And it's just biweekly reminders of ideas and paradigms and action steps that we can take as creatives to 
put as much of our heart and soul into our efforts, call it marketing, call it whatever you like. I think about it as building and engaging and serving an audience that wants more of what we make. And mm. if you can wrap your head around that, then the marketing efforts don't become so inconsistent, so ad hoc, so half-hearted, and they become a gift in themselves. They become, you know, imagine if you could send emails to your audience that love what you make, that want more of it. And instead of, you know, worrying about whether they're going to unsubscribe or, you know, just not read it, you're getting thank you letters from mm. your audience saying that email changed my life or that email made me think something new or feel something or introduced me to something that I hadn't thought of before. That is all part of our art making. It's, it's touching real people with what we do. And especially as writers, there's such an opportunity for us to take those efforts and not feel squeamish about the idea of marketing, but transform that marketing idea, that used car salesman picture in our mind and turn it into a person who loves and serves and gives gifts to an audience of people that love what you make and want more of it. So it's called the Audience Academy. And uh, you can get it at theaudienceacademy.com. And there's a little short little ebook there called Encore. And it's the subtitle something like three ways to stop marketing and start engaging an audience that wants more of what you make or some horribly long subtitle. Um, but uh, I would love to send these biweekly emails out to any of you who want to, not everyone wants to engage the world with their art, but if you want to make a better living and uh, make more impact with what you create because you want to get your work in front of audiences, then that might be one useful way to do it. And I, I'd be very happy to send you the Audience Academy. So theaudienceacademy.com, just go there and tell, tell me where to send it and it's on its way. David, um, I spent 10 years in marketing and there's a reason that I am no longer in marketing and and, and I'm self-employed now and every single thing, you couldn't see me, we're not doing a video call, but while you were talking about audience building and engaging with people and receiving thank you notes from people, just everything you were saying about that version of marketing, I was, my eyes were closed and I was just nodding so hard. I was like, yes, preach it. I love it. It's that's absolutely, absolutely what writers need to be doing. Those of you who listen to this podcast often know that I am a proponent of this type of marketing. So please do go check out the audienceacademy.com sign up. It's a biweekly email. I don't think you're going to regret it at all ever. So, and if you, and if you do, you can just unsubscribe and I will go into the corner and quietly weep. There you go. See, yeah. it, it's so we, easy. We, we all win. <laughs> <laughs> you get to cleanse your emotions, you know, David, you're wonderful. Thanks. This is so wonderful. You great, are wonderful. That was great. Oh my gosh. Thanks. It was great. Well, let's do it again. Yes, please. I would love that. Take good care of okay. yourself. You too. And uh, once again, there'll be links to all of David's things in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you click those links. And David, you're just a freaking national treasure. So thank you. You're very kind. Thanks so much, Sarah.